Chapter Twelve of the Slipper Point Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Slipper Point Mystery, by Augusta Hule Seaman, Chapter Twelve, Light Dawns on Miss Camilla. What do you make of it all, Sally? The two girls were sitting in the pine grove on the heights of Slipper Point. They sat each with her back against a tree, and with the enchanting view of the upper river spread out panoramically before them. Each of them was knitting, an accomplishment they had both recently acquired. "'I can't make anything of it at all, and I've thought of it day and night ever since,' was Sally's reply. "'It's three weeks now since the day we came through that tunnel and discovered where it ended, and except what Miss Camilla told us that day, she's never mentioned a thing about it since.' "'It's strange how she stopped short.' "'Just after she said the writing was her brother's,' mused Doris, "'and then asked us in the next breath not to question her about it any more, "'and to forgive her silence in the matter, "'because it probably concerned something that was painful to her.' "'Yes, and kept the paper we found in the cave,' went on Sally. "'I believe she wanted to study it out, and see what she could make of it. "'If she's sure it's written by her brother, "'she will probably be able to puzzle it out better than we would. "'One thing I guess is certain, though.' It isn't any secret directions where to find treasure. All our little hopes about that turned out very differently, didn't they? "'Sally, are you glad or sorry we've discovered what we did about that cave?' demanded Doris suddenly. "'Oh, glad, of course,' was Sally's reply. "'At first I was awfully disgusted to think all my plans and hopes about it, and finding buried treasure, and all that had come to nothing. But do you know what has made me feel differently about it?' She looked up quickly at Doris." "'No, what?' asked her companion curiously. "'It's Miss Camilla herself,' answered Sally. "'I used to think you were rather silly to be so crazy about her and admire her so much. I'd never thought anything about her, and I'd known her most all my life. But since she asked us that day to come and see her as often as we liked, and stop at her house whenever we were up this way, and consider her as our friend, I've somehow come to feel differently. I'm glad we took her at her word and did it.' I don't think I would have, if it hadn't been for you, but you've insisted on our stopping at her house so frequently, and we've become so well acquainted with her, that I really think I—I I almost love her. It pleased Doris beyond words to hear Sally make this admission. She wanted Sally to appreciate all that was fine and admirable and lovely in Miss Camilla, even if she were poor and lonely and deaf. She felt that the friendship would be good for Sally— and she knew that she herself was profiting by the increased acquaintance with this friend they had so strangely made. "'Wasn't it nice of her to teach us to knit?' went on Sally. "'She said we all ought to be doing it now to help out our soldiers, since the country is at war.' "'She's taught me lots beside that,' said Doris. "'I just love to hear her talk about old potteries and porcelains and that sort of thing. I do believe she knows more about them than even my grandfather does.' She's making me crazy to begin a collection myself some day, when I'm old enough. She must have had a fine collection once. I do wonder what became of it. Well, I don't understand much about all that talk, admitted Sally. I never saw any porcelains worth while in all my life, except that little thing she has on her mantle, and I don't see anything to get so crazy about in that. It's kind of pretty, of course, but why get excited about it? What puzzles me more is why she never has said what became of all her other things." "'That's a part of the mystery,' said Doris. "'And her brother's mixed up in it somehow, and perhaps her father. That much I'm sure of. She talks freely enough about everything else except those things, so that must be it. 
do you know what i'm almost tempted to think that her brother did commit some crime and her father hid him away in the cave to escape from justice but she couldn't have known about it that's plain because she did not know about the cave and tunnel at all until just lately perhaps she wondered what became of him and maybe they sold all her lovely porcelains to make up for what he'd done somehow yes cried sally in sudden excitement and another idea has just come to me maybe that queer paper was a note her brother left for her and she can't make out how to read it did you ever think of that why no exclaimed doris struck with the new idea i never thought of it as anything he might have left for her do you remember she said once they were awfully fond of each other more even than most brothers and sisters it would be perfectly natural if he did want to leave her a note if he had to go away and perhaps never come back and of course he wouldn't want anyone else to understand what it said oh wait i have an idea we've never thought of before why on earth have we been so stupid she sprang up and began to walk about excitedly while sally watched her consumed with curiosity at length she could bear the suspense no longer well for pity's sake tell me what you've thought of she demanded i'll go wild if you keep it to yourself much longer where's that copy was all doris would reply i want to study it a moment sally drew it from her pocket and handed it to her and doris spent another five minutes regarding it absorbedly it is it surely is she muttered half to herself but how are we ever going to think out how to work it at last she turned to the impatient sally i'm a fool not to have thought of this before sally i read a book once i can't remember what it was now but it was some detective story where there was something just a little like this not that it looked like this but the idea was the same if it is what i think it isn't the note itself at all the note if there is one must be somewhere else this is only a secret code or arrangement of the letters so that one can read the note by it probably the real note is written in such a way that it could never be understood at all without this do you understand sally had indeed grasped the idea and was wildly excited by it oh doris she cried admiringly you certainly are a wonder to have thought all this out it's ten times as interesting as what we first thought it was but how do you work this code i can't make anything out of it at all well neither can i i'll have to admit but here's what i think if we could see what that note itself looks like we could perhaps manage to puzzle out just how this code works but how are we going to do that demanded sally only miss camilla has the note if there is a note and certainly we couldn't very well ask her to let us see it especially after what she said to us that day no we couldn't i suppose said doris thoughtfully and yet she hesitated i somehow feel perfectly certain that miss camilla doesn't know the meaning of all this yet hasn't even guessed what we have about this paper she doesn't act so maybe she doesn't even know there is a note you can't tell if she hasn't guessed it would be a mercy to tell her wouldn't it yes i suppose so admitted sally dubiously but i wouldn't know how to go about it would you i could only try and do my best and beg her to forgive me if i were intruding said doris yes i believe she ought to be told you can't tell how she may be worrying about all this she acts awfully worried seems to me not at all like she did when we first knew her i believe we ought to tell her right now call genevieve and we'll go over sally called to genevieve who was playing in the boat on the beach below and that young lady soon came scrambling up the bank hand in hand all three started to the home of miss camilla and when they had reached it found her sitting on her tiny porch knitting in apparently placid content but true to doris's observation 
there were anxious lines in her face that had not been seen a month ago. She greeted them, however, with real pleasure, and with her usual hospitality, proffered refreshments, this time in the shape of some early peaches she had gathered only that morning. But Doris, who with Sally's consent had constituted herself spokesman, before accepting the refreshment, began, "'Miss Camilla, I wonder if you'll forgive us for speaking of something to you? It may seem as if we were intruding, but we really don't intend to.' "'Why, speak right on!' exclaimed that lady in surprise. "'You are too well-bred to be intrusive, that I know. If you feel you must speak of something to me, I know it is because you think it wise or necessary.' Much relieved by this assurance, Doris went on, explaining how she had suddenly had a new idea concerning the mysterious paper, and detailing what she thought it might be. As she proceeded, a new light of comprehension seemed to creep into the face of Miss Camilla, who had been listening intently. "'So we think it must be a code, a secret code, Miss Camilla, and if you happen to have any queer sort of note or communication that you've never been able to make out, why, this may explain it,' she added." When she had finished, Miss Camilla sat perfectly still, thinking. She thought so long and so intently that it seemed as if she must have forgotten completely the presence of the three on the porch with her. And after what seemed an interminable period, she did a strange thing. Instead of replying with so much as a word, she got up and went into the house, leaving them open-mouthed and wondering. "'Do you suppose she's angry with us?' whispered Sally. "'Do you think we ought to stay?' "'No, I don't think she's angry,' replied Doris, in a low voice. "'I think she's so, so absorbed, that she hardly realizes what she's doing, or that we are here. We'd better stay.' They stayed, but so long was Miss Camilla gone, that even Doris began to doubt the wisdom of remaining any longer. But presently she came back. Her recently neat dress was grimy and disheveled. There was a streak of dust across her face, and a cobweb lay on her hair. Doris guessed at once— that she had been in the old, unused portion of her house, but in her hand she carried something, and resuming her seat, she laid it carefully on her knee. It was a little book, about four inches wide and six or seven long, with an old-fashioned brown cover, and it was coated with what seemed to be the dust of years. The two girls gazed at it curiously, and when Miss Camilla had got her breath, she explained, "'I can never thank you enough for what you have told me to-day.' It throws light on something that has never been clear to me, something that I had even forgotten for long years. If what you surmise is true, then a mystery that has surrounded my life for more than fifty years will be at last explained. It is strange that the idea did not occur to me when first you girls discovered the cave and the tunnel, but even then it remained unconnected in my mind with this. She pointed to the little book in her lap. Then she went on. "'But now, under the circumstances, I feel that I must explain it all to you, relying still on your discretion and secrecy, for I have come to know that you are both unusually trustworthy young folks. There has been a dark shadow over my life, a darker shadow than you can perhaps imagine. I told you before of my father's opinions and leanings during the years preceding the Civil War. When that terrible conflict broke out, he insisted that I go away to Europe with my aunt, and stay there as long as it lasted.' providing me with ample funds to do so. I think that he did not believe at first that the struggle would be so long. I went with considerable reluctance, but I was accustomed to obeying his wishes implicitly. I was gone two years, and in all that time I received the most loving and affectionate letters constantly, from both him and also my brother. They assured me that everything was well with them. 
my brother had enlisted at once in the Union Army, and had fought through a number of campaigns. My father remained here, but was doing his utmost, so he said, in a private capacity, to further the interest of the country. Altogether their reports were glowing, and though I was often worried as to the outcome, and apprehensive for my brother's safety, I spent two years abroad very happily. Then, in May of 1863, my first calamity happened. My aunt died very suddenly and unexpectedly, while we were in Switzerland, and as we had been alone, it was my sad duty to bring her back to New York. After her funeral, I hurried home here, wondering very much that my father had not come on to be with me, for I had sent him word immediately upon my arrival. My brother, I suspected, was away with the army. I was completely astounded and dismayed, on arriving home, at the condition of affairs I found here. To begin with, there were no servants about. Where they had gone, or why they had been dismissed, I could not discover. My father was alone in his study when I arrived, which was rather late in the evening. He was reserved, and rather taciturn in his greeting to me, and did not act very much pleased to welcome me back. This grieved me greatly, after my long absence, but I could see that he was worried and preoccupied, and in trouble of some kind. I thought that perhaps he had had bad news about my brother Roland, but he assured me that Roland was all right. Then I asked him why the house was in such disorder, and where the servants were, but he only begged me not to make inquiries about that matter at present, but to go to my room and make myself as comfortable as I could, and he would explain it all later. I did as he asked me, and went to my room. I had been there about an hour, busying myself with unpacking my bag, when there was a hurried knock at my door. I went to open it, and gave a cry of joy, for there stood my brother Roland. Instead of greeting me, however, he seized my hand and cried, "'Father is very ill. He has had some sort of stroke. Hurry downstairs to him at once. I must leave immediately. I can't even wait to see how he is. It is imperative.' "'But, Roland,' I cried, "'surely you won't go, leaving father like this?' But he only answered, "'I must. I must. It's my duty.' He seized me in his arms and kissed me, and was gone without another word. But before he went, I had seen a dreadful thing. He was enveloped from head to foot in a long, dark, military cape of some kind, reaching almost to his feet. But as he embraced me under the light of the hall lamp, the cloak was thrown aside for an instant, and I had that terrible glimpse. Under the concealing cloak my brother was wearing a uniform of Confederate gray. I almost fainted at the sight but he was gone before I could utter a word, without probably even knowing that I had seen. This, then, was the explanation of the mysterious way they had treated me. They had gone over to the enemy. They were traitors to their country and their faith, and they did not want me to know. For this they had even sent me away out of the country. But I had no time to think about that then. I hurried to my father, and found him on the couch in his study, inert in the grip of a paralytic stroke that had deprived him of the use of his limbs, and also of coherent speech. I spent the rest of the night trying to make him easier, but the task was difficult. I had no one to send for a doctor, and could not leave him to go myself, and of course the nearest doctor was miles away. There was not even a neighbor who could be called upon for assistance. All that night, however, my father tried to tell me something. His speech was almost absolutely incoherent, but several times I caught the sound of words like notebook and explain, but I could make nothing of it. In the early morning another stroke took him, and he passed away very quietly in my arms. I can scarcely bear even now to recall the days that followed. After the funeral I retired very much into myself, and saw almost no one. 
I felt cut off and abandoned by all humanity. I did not know where my brother was, could not even communicate with him about the death of our father. Had he been in the Union Army, I would have inquired, but the glimpse I had had that night of his rebel uniform was sufficient to seal my lips for ever. There was no one in the village whom I knew well enough to discuss any such matters with, nor any remaining relative with whom I was in sympathy. I could only wait for my brother's return to solve the mystery. But my brother never returned. In all these years I have neither seen him nor heard of him, and I know beyond doubt that he is long since dead. I have remained here by myself like a hermit, because I feel that the shame of it all has hung about me and enveloped me, and I cannot get away from it. Once, a number of years ago, an old village gossip here, now long since gone, said to me, "'There was something queer about your father and brother, now wasn't there, Miss Camilla. I've heard tell as how they were rebs on the quiet, during the big war a while back. Is that so?' Of course, the chance remark only served to confirm the suspicious in my mind, though I denied it firmly to her when she said it. I also found, to my amazement, when I went over the house after all was over, that many things I had loved and valued had strangely disappeared. All the family silver, of which we had had a valuable set, inherited from revolutionary forefathers, was gone. Some antique jewelry that I had picked up abroad and prized highly was also missing. But, chief of all, my whole collection of precious porcelains and pottery was nowhere to be found. I searched in every conceivable nook and cranny in vain, and at last the disagreeable truth was forced upon me, that my father and brother had sold or disposed of them, for what ends I could not guess. But it only added to my bitterness to think they could do such a despicable thing without so much as consulting me. But now, at last, I come to the notebook. I found it among some papers in my father's study desk, a while after his death, and I frankly confess I could make nothing of it whatever. It seemed to be filled with figures, added and subtracted, and as my father had always been rather fond of dabbling with figures and mathematics, I put it down as being some quiet calculations of his own that had no bearing on anything concerning me. I laid it carefully away with his other papers, however, and there it has been in an old trunk in the attic of the unused part of all these years. When you spoke of a secret code, however, it suddenly occurred to me that the notebook might be concerned in the matter. Here it is. She held it out to them, and they crowded about her eagerly, but as she laid it open and they examined its pages, a disappointed look crept into Sally's eyes. "'Why, there's nothing here but numbers!' she exclaimed, and it was even so. The first few lines were as follows. "'Fifty-six plus fourteen minus sixty-three plus forty-three plus thirty-four plus fifty-four plus sixty-four plus forty-three plus sixteen minus fifty-two plus sixty-six plus fifty-two plus fifteen plus twenty-three minus sixty-six plus twenty-four minus fifteen plus forty-four plus forty-three minus forty-three plus sixty-four plus forty-three plus twenty-four plus fifteen minus sixty-one plus fifty-three minus thirty-six plus twenty-four plus fourteen minus fifty-one plus fifteen plus fifty-three plus fifty-four plus forty-three plus fifty-two plus forty-three plus forty-three plus fifteen minus sixteen plus sixty-six plus fifty-two plus thirty-six plus fifty-two plus fifteen plus forty-three plus twenty-three minus and all the rest were exactly like them in character 
but Doris, who had been quietly examining it, with a copy of the code in her other hand, suddenly uttered a delighted cry. "'I have it! At least I think I'm on the right track. Just examine this code a moment, Miss Camilla. If you notice, leaving out the line of figures at the top and right of the whole square, the rest is just letters of the alphabet, and figures one to nine, and another O, that probably stands for naught. There are six squares across and six squares down, and those numbers on the outside are just one to six, only mixed up. Don't you see how it could be worked? Suppose one wanted to write the letter T. It could be indicated by the number five, meaning the square it comes under according to the top line of figures, and one, the number according to the side line. Then fifty-one would stand for the letter T, wouldn't it? Great, interrupted Sally enthusiastically, who had seen the method even quicker than Miss Camilla. But suppose it worked the other way, reading the side line first, then T would be fifteen. Of course, that's true, admitted Doris. I suppose there must have been some understanding between those who invented this code about which line to read first. The only way we discover it is to puzzle it out both ways and see which makes sense. One will, and the other won't. It all seemed as simple as rolling off a log, now that Doris had discovered the explanation. Even Miss Camilla was impressed with the value of the discovery. "'But what is the meaning of those plus and minus signs?' she queried. "'I suppose they stand for something.' "'I think that's easy,' answered Doris. "'In looking over it I see there are a great many more plus than minus signs. Now I think the plus signs must be intended to divide the numbers in groups of two, so that each group stands for a letter, otherwise they'd be all hopelessly mixed up, and the minus signs divide the words.' and every once in a while, if you notice, there's a multiplication sign. I imagine those are the periods at the end of the sentences. They all sat silent a moment after this, marveling at the simplicity of it, but at length Doris suggested, Suppose we try to puzzle out a little of it and see if we are really on the right track. Have you a piece of paper and a pencil, Miss Camilla? Miss Camilla went indoors and brought them out, quivering with the excitement of the new discovery. Now, let's see, began Doris. Suppose we try reading the top line first. Fifty-six would be one, and fourteen would be two. Now, twelve may mean a word, or it may not. It hardly seems as if a note would begin with that. Let's try it the other way. Sideline first. Then fifty-six is M, and fourteen is Y. My is a word, anyway, so perhaps we're on the right track. Let's go on. From the next series of letters she spelled the word beloved, and after that sister. It was plain, beyond all doubting, that at last they had stumbled on a wonderful discovery. But she got no further than the words, My Beloved Sister, for no sooner had Miss Camilla taken in their meaning than she huddled back in her chair and very quietly fainted away. End of chapter 12